Well, good morning. It's great to uh, be with you. My name is Joshua Pegram. I'm here with my uh, wife. We've got three kiddos, all a uh, shade younger than the John's kids. We live in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. Honestly, we feel that Kennelly Road is very near and dear to our hearts. I was thinking it's actually been, I think, about a decade since I preached here, which is kind of hard to believe. We've uh, been back a couple of times, uh, so like in 2018 for Darren's ordination. I think we popped in on another Sunday. But having pastored the last 15 years, Sundays aren't the easiest day to be away at someone else's church and visit. So very thankful to, uh, to be here. Uh, my family and I moved uh, back to my hometown about a year ago. Uh, after a season of pastoring and working on a degree, and we kind of got a two to three year window of time. You know, Steve's better than I. He, he knocked it all out. You know, while pastoring, I'm uh, I got a dissertation to write and a couple things to knock out. So, uh, very thankful for the opportunity to do that, as well as honestly to uh, brush up a little bit this morning. So, I get to practice on you guys because uh, not preaching every Sunday right now. I'm very thankful for this opportunity. I also wanted to express uh, my gratitude to Steve and Bethann. There is no pastor I love and respect more than Steve. And Steve has been a friend, as he said, for over 20 years, but honestly, he's pastored uh, me a lot in that time as well, and my wife. And it's been such a gift to us to have uh, someone that we can reach out to. You know, when you're, you're pastoring, you're serving people, and sometimes it's hard to know how to process stuff yourself. We're just people. Uh, we're, not shep- we're not just shepherds. We're also sheep. And uh, Steve has been that shepherd for me, and Bethann, a true uh, friend to Liz, and uh, we just love you guys so much and are so thankful for you and the gift you have been. Also grateful for Kennelly Road uh, Baptist Church. It may feel like you're, I don't know, you're just sitting on the side of the road here and what happens here. But it's an encouragement to us to know the gospel is faithfully preached and practiced. Uh, People are living in love and community with one another. And uh, honestly, just the existence of this church brings me great encouragement. And like I said, you're near and dear to our hearts. Uh, We pray for you and know you uh, just by proxy as uh, we've continued in friendship with Steve and Bethann over these last uh, 10 years since I've preached here. This morning, as you can see on the the screen, we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have a copy of God's word, I invite you to take it and turn to Hebrews 11. Now, I'll warn you, this is a long block of material, uh, 42 verses. Now, don't let that scare you, because the reality is, while there is a lot of text here, there are three main blocks of actual teaching with a lot of illustration in between. And there are some really good nuggets in those illustrations, which we won't have time to get into all of them this morning. But we're going to dig into the block of teaching here and see what we can draw, can draw out for our lives uh, this morning. If you would, would you pray with me and then we'll dive into the text together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather for worship. We thank you that whenever your word is preached, it always accomplishes your purpose And so we can rest in that this morning. We pray now as we come to your word that you will give us understanding, that your spirit would confront us where we should be confronted, encouraged, and give us hope where we need hope. And Lord, we pray that we will become one degree more like Christ this morning as we are changed from one degree of glory to the next. Open our eyes, show us wonderful things in your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look here in Hebrews 11 at the idea of enduring faith, we're going to see this central truth together, that enduring faith keeps its eyes on Jesus. Enduring faith keeps its eyes on Jesus. 
And to help us think about this idea of looking, I brought a couple of pictures with me this morning. Now, you may not recognize this picture. It may not look like anyone you know, but this is actually a very close-up of a molecule of steel taken from the most powerful microscope in the world, the transition, Transmission Electronic Microscope manufactured by a company in Japan, Hitachi, this microscope can see up to 0.043 nanometers, which is less than half the radius of typical atoms. This microscope has the ability to zoom in not only far beyond what the naked eye can see, but what any other instrument can see. Now, at the other end of the spectrum is the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, run and owned by NASA, it has the ability, we think, to see 14 billion light years in distance to the edge of the known existing universe. Now, this is just a mock-up of the model from the NASA site, not the actual telescope itself, which no doubt sits far enough out in space that we can't get an actual picture of it at this point. But if I were to ask you, what is the difference between these two remarkable instruments? One clearly helps us see up close, while the other helps us extend our view beyond what we can ordinarily see. No doubt you have no access to instruments like these. In fact, I don't either, but perhaps you have instruments like these. Uh, some of them, some of you are wearing them. Now, you cannot see this particular uh, set of glasses. I borrowed them from a family member. I'll get you guess which one. But if you were to look a little more closely, perhaps you can see these are actually bifocals. In other words, they're designed to help see far away and up close. This morning, my contention here in Hebrews 11 is that the writer is illustrating at length the idea that we should fix our gaze further out than we tend to do. Why is this? Well, I think at some level, it's because life gets us looking through that close-up lens, doesn't it? I mean, right now, some of you are no doubt thinking about lunch, work, perhaps an argument you had on the way to church or getting out the door. You didn't sleep well last night. You wish you had more coffee than you had this morning, or you were hoping that I was going to preach a little shorter than I'm going to preach. There's something, no doubt, in all of our minds, and each of those things has to do with the circumstances surrounding us in life. Life gets us naturally looking at our circumstances and living moment by moment. But faith, what we're going to look at this morning, as it's revealed in the Word of God, lifts our eyes, and if you will, to follow our telescope-microscope example, points us forward 14 billion light years into the distance and says, look beyond where you normally look. Ultimately, the text calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, we think of this as looking forward, but we'll see the text actually calls us to both look forward and to look back. Actually, by looking back, we can look forward. And as the end of Hebrews 10 says, the text that uh, Darren read just a few moments ago, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We 
have faith. Well, Hebrews 11, 18 times calls us, points us toward living by faith. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, what is faith? I imagine we'd hear things like trust, believing in something we can't see, maybe something reliable. And these are good ideas. They're excellent ways of describing faith. But what we're going to see this morning is that biblical faith is like a gem, that when you hold it up to the light and you turn it, you see different aspects of faith. Uh, Sometimes faith in Scripture is a decisive act of believing. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. A decisive act. Other times, faith is something exercised over a long period of time. A race, a marathon, an endeavor that lasts a whole life. We turn again and again to the same truths that saved us in faithful living. And it's that second picture that we see here in our text today. As I've walked through life, I sometimes think of faith as what bridges the gap between our experience in life and what God says is true in his word. In other words, life tells us things. Uh, You lose a loved one. Uh, You experience betrayal by someone that you trust. You're living in a community of faith, and sometimes it doesn't feel like a community. You go to school, and you feel like you don't belong. Each of these things tells us something. Our experiences tell us something. They may tell us that God isn't good, or that God isn't sovereign, and yet God tells us in his word that he is both good and in control. And so what does faith do? Faith bridges the gap between our experience here and what God declares to be true. And by faith, we believe that this is true. Sometimes that faith is all we have. Faith can sometimes feel... Wispy, hard to grasp. And no matter how you would describe faith this morning, if I were to ask you, describe faith, define faith in your own words, I I doubt you would describe it this way, as substantive proof. Something weighty, definitive, and convictional. So it's surprising that when we arrive in Hebrews 11 and look at this chapter's definition of faith, this is exactly what we find in the first three verses. Verse 1 makes a remarkable claim. Faith is substance, the word assurance here, and proof, the word conviction in my translation. Faith is more than you think. And to help us think about this, I want to transport you back some 1,500, 1,600 years to the 4th and 5th century. So in the early church, there are things that we just accept now that are defined doctrine and belief that for the first few hundred years were frankly being still decided or, or, or looked at. What does scripture actually teach about these things? And those areas of doctrine centered on the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. So what does it mean for God to become a human being 
in what does it mean that we worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. And as they walked through this, they came to the determination that the word here in your text, assurance, what I have on the screen as substance, is a way to definitively distinguish between the persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Each has a distinct substance. There's something unique to them. Well, why do I share all that, knowing that you are no doubt not fascinated by that truth? It's to show you that this word has weight to it. It's something more than you no doubt think of. If I were to kind of throw out different words at you this morning, you might say, well, hope is good and faith is a little bit stronger than hope. Well, the biblical idea of faith is much stronger. Uh, This past week, my family and I traveled to Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown, Virginia. We came back, we were driving back Thursday, uh, fairly late in the day and then late into the night. And as we were traveling along, in my peripheral, I thought I saw a highway patrol officer uh, to my right. I was frankly unaware of what speed I was traveling. I don't know if I was uh, talking, cruising, or just kind of zoned out, but I I wasn't paying attention. However, I was aware of the fact that people were passing me, so I hope that was a good sign. However, as I passed this officer, who again, I was tangentially aware of, but not consciously aware of just yet, right when I passed him, Boo, his lights came on, and whoo, I heard his engine rev up, and he came out right after me. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And he pulled out right behind me. I got into the right lane, and then he blew by me. Fortunately, he was after someone else, apparently one of the people that had recently passed me, thankfully going faster than I was. Well, in that moment, as the officer was there, I was aware of his car, the moment his lights came on and I heard his engine rev the instant I passed him, I moved from a general sense awareness of awareness to a certain conviction that that was a highway patrol officer. I moved from a sense that something was true to an absolute certainty that that was exactly what I had just passed. And the way Hebrews here describes faith is that sense of certainty. It's something definitive. Faith moves beyond a sense that something is true to a settled conviction that it must be true. And then Hebrews 11 uses a brief illustration here in verse 3, and then for 37 verses, a series of extended illustrations to show us what is true about Faith. First, brief illustration, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What demonstrates the weighty substance, the reliability of faith? The first thing that the text points us to is our faith in what is true in creation. How does Genesis 
tell us the creation story. How does God create? And God said, let there be light. And God said, and God said, and God said. It points us to the words of God. So we know that God is the creator by our faith in what he said. And then to prove what he's saying, the author embarks on a remarkable account of this kind of faith in Scripture. So if you have your text there, we'll pick up reading in verse 1 and read down to verse 16. Now, faith is the assurance, the conviction of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now the illustrations. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him, as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. So if faith is both, both substance and proof, how does faith live? And that is really the question that Hebrews 11 answers at length. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith has this qualitative change in our relationship with our Creator. Does faith look forward or backward? Well, Hebrews 11 says both. You must look back and look forward. And the bulk of this passage looks back to creation and Old Testament saints. I think one of the values of this passage is that 
It teaches us that we're encouraged not by, not just by who God is and what God does, but also by how people respond to who God is and what God does. Each of the people discussed here are Old Testament, Old Covenant Christians or saints, people who believed the promises of God not yet received. We just read about the first five, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. We'll get to Isaac, Joseph, Moses, Israel at the Red Sea, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. We've got patriarchs, a prostitute, prophets, polygamists. What is it that unites this rather motley crew? The first thing we see here is that they trust in promises not yet received. We look back to see how they looked forward. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So our fathers and mothers in the faith lived by faith and died in faith. Well, if there's anything other than faith that everyone in this chapter has in common, it's that they are all dead. There are no living examples here. Some died heroes. None died without regret. I mean, Abraham, Father Abraham, many sons. Well, he believed the promises of God. But he also tried to take the promise into his own hand and create a son through taking his wife's servant and sort of force the promise of God into existence. But what about Moses? Moses led the people out of Egypt into the edge of the promised land, but not in because of his sin. Israel did pass through the Red Sea, as we read about here, but then they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Gideon? Altar to a false god. Samson chased women to his ruin. Doesn't sound like people characterized by faith. Yet each of these fallen, fallible people also demonstrate confidence in God's promises. Abraham believed the Lord would raise Isaac from the dead. Moses lived for the promises of God rather than the prosperity of Egypt. Samson and Gideon led God's people out of intense oppression. So what makes these mixed figures commendable? They trust the promises of God. Verse 2, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Verse 39, end of the chapter, all these are commended through their faith. They believed in promises yet received. Verse 39 tells us they did not receive what was promised. What is the difference between a shadow of an object and the object itself? In fact, as I wave my hand here, you can't see it, but I can see a shadow of my hand over the pulpit here. Well, a shadow resembles the object, at least if we're doing it right. 
You may see contours of the object. You may even get an accurate picture of the object, but you could also have an inaccurate picture. It could appear smaller than it actually is or larger than it actually is. You can't see colors. You can't see it in 3D. So a shadow tells us what something is like, but it doesn't tell us what it actually is. I mean, you can see a shadow, but I don't think you probably have ever fallen in love with a shadow. A shadow has limitations. Only when we see the actual object can we truly see its identity. And Hebrews 10 tells us that these Old Testament saints just saw shadows. Not the real thing. Hebrews 10 verse 1, Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The Old Covenant is a story of shadows, of longing for the real thing. We see prophets who speak God's word only to see God's people reject God's word over and over and over again. We see priests offer sacrifice after sacrifice and yet never really remove the stain of sin. And the history of the Bible is littered with the story of failed king after failed king after failed king. Even the best of them isn't great. Yet the whole time, God's people are looking at these shadows of the reality. They long for the real thing. They long for the reality, the full-orbed 3D. The day when the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king would come. And we sit here today, not with the shadow, but having received the reality. That prophet, priest, and king has come. His name is Jesus Christ. God fulfilled his promise in the coming of his son. So how does Hebrews chapter 1 start out? Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by whom? By his son. God spoke in shadows and now speaks in reality. The full revelation of God in flesh has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The son, the promised one, has come. So faith lives by trusting in promises that we don't yet receive. Faith also longs for home. The end of verse 13, these people acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Well, if you don't know it before, by the time you reach middle school, you know what it is not to belong. I mean, you walk in and sit down at the wrong table in the lunchroom. Big mistake. Or you walk into a room and the conversation stops. But, I mean, it doesn't stop in middle school. We're a little more sophisticated about it as adults. I mean, perhaps you're a young mom 
had a baby, and you feel like you forgot how to interact socially. You just kind of feel like, I don't know, you got a, a limb growing at the top of your head whenever you walk in. Or your kids get a little older, and do you have them, I don't know, you've got them in the right number of extracurricular activities? Are you overextending, or are you underserving? We all know what it's like to not belong. But if you've ever experienced time, extended time, in a foreign culture, completely different culture, you know what it's really like. A place where you can't understand the language. You don't even understand cultural norms. Now, this isn't a foreign land, but my dad grew up in the cornfields of Iowa and then spent his life serving in South Carolina. And I remember every couple years, we'd take that long thousand-mile trek in the car out to Iowa. As we got closer and closer, I would see my dad's character change. But I don't mean his, uh, the, the way he treated us. I could just tell there were, there were things that spoke to him about being there. And you could kind of almost see the weight roll off his shoulders. And the cares melt away. Because he was headed home. Now, some people never experience that good feeling of home at all. For some people, home isn't a place of safety or longing. It's a place to be feared and forgotten. But even that feeling is a reminder that we all want a home. Could we say even need a home? We're designed for a home. Yet even in the best home, things often don't feel quite right. Family conflict. Bicker, bicker, bicker. A sense of underlying tension. Friends that don't feel like friends. You see, each of these things is a sign that there must be something better. Even the best home tells us, this ain't it. We desire a better country that is a heavenly one. There is a true home, a place where we truly belong. Let's pick up reading now in verse 17. We'll go down to verse 31. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Faith trusts God's promises, longs for home, and looks to the reward. Verse 26, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. A handful of times in my life, we have purchased a home. And each time we go through the process of looking for and then purchasing a home, there's a sense in which I feel like I have just signed my life away. There is a sense of excitement and then of weightiness to that decision that signing this paper means more than signing a lot of other things. Well, why would I sign my life away? Because of the reward of the home. In a similar way, faith is that signature for Christians. It's the reward is yet to be received and yet not fully received. Our faith is like a title to a car or a deed to a house that says, that house, that car, the reward is ours. And yet we don't have it in hand yet. We can look to the reward in a way that's selfish. I trust in Jesus so he makes me healthy, wealthy, and happy. But health, wealth, and happiness in this life are much too small a reward. We live for a heavenly home, a heavenly reward, a reward that lasts forever, granted by God himself to those who walk by faith. Eternal life with God himself, our father, Christ, our brother, surrounded by an eternal family. We said the Old Testament saints looked at shadows, not the reality. And yet, in some ways, our life still parallels that experience. Oh, we have received the redemptive promises of God in Christ, but we haven't got them all yet. Through the work of Christ, that, that deed is signed, but house is not in hand. 1 Corinthians 13 uses similar language to the Hebrews' shadow language to describe our lives now. Hebrew, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Uh, perhaps you have someone in your household who has the gift of long showers. If you follow them, no hot water. But one other thing is, if you follow them and walk into that same restroom, the mirror is fogged up. And 1 Corinthians 13 says that life here and now is like a fogged up mirror. But life there 
makes the Apple Vision Pro look chintzy and cheap and nothing. We will live in the full-orbed reality of all that is ours in Christ. Now, Hebrews 11 offers this glorious picture, but it's going to leave us on a cliffhanger. Let's read verses 32 through 40. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Hebrews 10, we don't shrink back. We endure. Now we see these examples of saints who have endured. So we ask ourselves, how does our faith endure? And Hebrews 11 doesn't answer that for us. For that, we must look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, In light of all of these examples of enduring faith, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, Chapter 12 uses a metaphor here of a race to help us understand what it's like to run the Christian life. Lay aside what weighs you down. Look to Jesus, the one who ran before. And if you'll bear with me, I'd like to zero in on the second part of this metaphor, where we look. And the author says we must lift our eyes. Get out of the trees. See the forest. Run with the end in mind. We are mostly emerged from this stage of life, but I'm not going to say it never pops its head up. Have you ever taken a walk with young children? And as you walk, what kind of questions are they asking? How far? How long? Can we turn around? Can we go back? But what changes the moment that child sees the end of the walk? They go from lagging to running toward the finish line because they can see it. They can smell home. And they probably get there before you do, even though moments before they completely lacked energy, simply by seeing the finish line, they run to the end. 
We live with the end in view by lifting our eyes and looking to Jesus. And this isn't unique to us. Jesus ran his race the same way. He looked to the joy that was ahead. As on the cross, he's surrounded by the wrath of God, the rejection of his father, the betrayal of friends. He lifted his eyes to what lay ahead. If you're here without saving faith in this Savior, looking ahead offers nothing but despair. Because life as you're experiencing it now is as good as it will ever be. But if you are in Christ and look ahead, life here is as bad as it will ever be. The Christian life is nothing to play at, nothing to gamble with. If you are here this morning without true saving faith in Christ, turn from your sin and trust this one who has gone before. But what about for those of us in Christ? What do we learn here? Four things. First, extend your view. We live with our daily weekly circumstances in view. And those things matter. I am not saying that your daily life doesn't matter. You should be a faithful employee, dedicated parent, hardworking student. But if you fixate on the minutia and swim there, you will become discouraged eventually and tempted to quit. One of the best tools to fight discouragement is to take a long view. Just extend it out. And Hebrews 11 says, extend it back, extend it out, extend it ahead. Look back. Learn from the lives of Christians who have gone before. Look out. See God's work in the global church. And look forward. Look ahead to a city whose builder and maker is God. Secondly, don't lose hope. These folks lived by faith. They also died in faith. If we take the microscope of introspection and zoom in on our lives, there's no question that every person here sees significant sin and failure. Now, we live in an era with incalculably greater advantages than these folks lived with. We have received the promises of God in Christ. We have the spirit within us. We can grow in Christ's likeness and holiness. Yet we are also faced with doubt and discouragement. Sometimes that's the result of sin. But sometimes it's just the result of living in a fallen world full of thorns. It's broken. Relationships are difficult. Friends, do not lose hope. We don't shrink back. We walk by faith and endure, knowing that endurance is a great reward. Thirdly, think about home and family a lot. This world isn't our home. I'm talking the capital H home, the capital F family. We have a city whose builder and maker is God. The text also points us to a bigger community of faith than we often think as our true family. We've got big brothers, Adam, 
Moses, Peter, James, John, and Jesus who have gone before. And we live out the connection to that family in community with our local family. Like our homes, people in our family here disappoint and wound us, sometimes grievously. So we live out our faith in this family, but the family of God is so much greater. Hebrews 11 says, look back and learn. Look to Sarah and Rahab and Joseph and David and Augustine and William Tyndale and Susanna Wesley and Elizabeth Elliot. Look back and learn and look ahead in hope. Keep your eyes on Jesus. (coughs) As we look back, out, forward. There's only one member of this family that will never disappoint you. It's our older brother, Jesus. The one who has gone before. We look to him and live. We look to him and run in faith, knowing that the one who founded our faith has also perfected it. So what if you're the kind of person Or maybe you're just going through a season of life where you are discouraged and tempted to lose heart. Lift your eyes. Extend your view. The circumstances are real. They are discouraging. But but think about that conflict. You know, one you had this week that feels big right now. In the scope of time, let's run that out a year, five years, 10 years. It may still be big, but it may not be. What if you're someone who's tempted to be impatient? Get frustrated with life and people. What if those minutes you are running late in the scope of eternity, feel like a drop in the bucket. Nothing. A wisp. It's gone. Extend your view. Or maybe you're someone who is praying, and you've prayed and hoped for a long time that someone you love will change. Maybe you're praying for them to come to faith in Christ. Maybe you're praying for an area of character or weakness to change. Take the long view. Trust in promises yet received. It's a foggy mirror now, but we will see then fully and be fully known as we know him. Oh, friends, let's lift our eyes and run our race looking to Jesus. Let's take a moment now to respond to the word and repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally and then I'll close this time in prayer in just a moment. Let's talk to him now. Oh God, we thank you for your word, for the way that it shapes us. Lord, some weeks, some days do feel like a slog. Others, we run quickly. 
Lord, I pray that when we're running quickly and easily, we would not grow overconfident. When life feels like a slog, Lord, that we would not lose hope. That we would look to Jesus. That we would run with endurance. That we would not shrink back, but that we would run in faith and die in faith. And Lord, I thank you that the life we experience now, we have received the promises of God in Christ, and yet we look forward to promises yet to come. Lord, I pray that we will not lose hope, we will not grow faint-hearted, but we will finish well by faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.